In studio with us this morning, it's Dr. Zena Khan. Good morning. Good morning, Pat. Thank you for having me back. Hey, listen, it's an absolute pleasure. It was a couple of weeks ago you were talking equity, wasn't it, on the One Love Breakfast? And now you're here for almost an hour to talk about you. Are you prepared? Of course I am. I was busy revising my life last night. I thought, (laughs) I don't know what to expect. But do you know what? I'm humbled. The funniest thing is that um, some of the stuff that you've probably revised, we we might not even talk about because there's so much stuff out in the public domain about you already, uh, or quite a bit of stuff people know about your professional work. So you're currently Faculty Academic Director of Student Experience at the University of the West of England. That's right. Um, You are uh, a doctor. And I'm not going to read all these. You're a non-practicing barrister, uh, a BA uh, ONS, and I've, I've got all these letters that I know absolutely uh, nothing what they mean, but I know what a PhD means. <laughs> you studied a lot. I did, yeah. Mm. Um, in fact, I think I spent the best part of my 20s in education, um, and I knew I wanted to do a PhD um, from quite an early age, so it's just one of those things that sort of snowballed, and I wasn't going to stop until I got it. Mm. But as anyone will tell you who has done a doctorate, the thoughts that you go through whilst you're on that journey are so horrific in terms of having that elephant in the room all the time that you've got this thing that you haven't quite finished Um, and yeah that just wasn't going to happen for me so I had to cross that finish line and I got my doctorate within a month of turning 30 so that was a really significant milestone for me. But we're going to go all the way back. And for those that don't know, I first came across this young lady as part of the equity programme for the University of the West of England. And many people would describe it in many ways. But I just thought, wow, there's this disruptive programme here that are challenging stereotypes. They're challenging the norms of how our students and, and, and how our communities teach and look after and guide and inspire young people specifically from BAME backgrounds, black, uh, Asian, African, minority, ethnic backgrounds, or as uh, Akala would like to say, uh, uh, ethnically minoritized. Racial uh, minorities. Racially, uh, Racial, racially yeah. minoritized backgrounds. And I found it inspiring because I'd never, ever seen or experienced anything like it. Uh, I've seen lots of people sitting at the meetings and, and talking about interesting things, but doing very, very little. So this was inspiring for me. So that is how Dr. Khan first came to our attention. And uh, in 2018, she won a Bristol Diversity Award. Uh, she was a shortlisted candidate. Uh, she is a shortlisted candidate for the National Diversity Awards, and she finds out tomorrow about that. But she won the Bristol Diversity Award for that amazing work. So let's in, fill in some of the gaps. Zena, where were you born? Bristol. Where else? All right. Bristol, born and raised. All right. Was it Gert Southmead or was it... Um, I was born on St. Michael's Hill. St. Michael's yeah, Hill. Yeah, maternity hospital. All right. And then uh, my parents took me back in a taxi. Right. And, uh, of course, it was an Asian taxi driver. And he turned, behind, turned back and said to my dad, what did you have, a boy or a girl? And he said it was a girl. And he was like, don't worry about it. Wow. <laughs> Really? Who told you that story? My dad told me. He, oh, he, he actually... very fondly remi- reminds me of it every year. Really? Yeah. All right. Tell us a bit about mum and dad. So mum and dad um, came to the UK from Pakistan. My dad came here when he was 15 with a couple of quid in his pocket. Yeah. Um, fairly typical story. Yeah. He uh, worked in factories to put himself through nice, night school. And then did quite well for himself, settled in London initially and um, went into financial services. And then mum came over after about 10 years when they got married. Um, And then dad had moved to Bristol by that point. 
Wow. So. So when did Dad come? What what what, what kind of period was it? Partition time, or was it later than no, that? No, Dad was born a year before partition happened. Right. So he was born in India, and yeah. then so his family were refugees. Yeah. Into Pakistan. Right. And then he came when he was fifteen, so it would have been early sixties. Um, and then mum came in the 70s and then she became um, a, a school teacher here. So yeah, I was v- I'm very fortunate in terms of the environment that I grew up in, in terms of that like education, education, nurturing, supportive yeah. environment. And I think my parents were also lucky that they had the resources to be able to put me through school. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit then about early life, uh, kind of, I, I suppose, as far back as as you remember so what was home like where was it uh in in bristol yeah so i grew up in redland yeah and i don't know if it, i've got rose tinted glasses about redland back in the 80s but i feel like there were hardly any cars everyone left their doors unlocked <laughs> and we used to ride our bikes in the middle of the streets right. it was that safe yeah um and everyone knew everyone and now that community's changed a lot where partly that's because we've got an explosion of student population mm. so lots of houses have been turned into multiple dwellings but also i think there's just that loss of community um and i would say that i think my initial early childhood was really quite good but um as i grew up i became very aware of how different my family were from any other family in the neighborhood and i was going to ask you this is that you know as kids and stuff we play with our well, either with our siblings or our or, or our friends ivan i've told you about your phone before um Pat's phone and so <laughs> she's so honest um we we play with our siblings and we play with our friends and sometimes we just go on through life actually completely ignorant about our own identity or ethnicity because actually it's not important mm. uh, at, at certain times. When did you first realise that it was an issue? I think, my or if it was, if you ever did. Yeah, I th- think there were some key moments in uh, certainly in primary school when I realised that I was ethnically different from other other kids. Yeah. So I think when I was four or five, one of my friends came over to play, and she said to my mum, "Oh, why is Anna's hands dirty?" And my mum said, "Oh, what do you mean?" She said, "Look, they're all brown." And so wow. then my mum had to explain to her that actually we were Asian and what that meant. And I think in terms of when I realised that race potentially presented a challenge yeah. was a few years afterwards when you heard the P word for the first time. Mm. So, yeah. And uh, I think my parents made a decision to live in Redland because they thought the schools were good there. But I don't think they fully appreciated the impact it had in terms of our own, and our being my brother and I, that our development of identity was definitely different had we grown up in Eastern or grown up within the community because we had no reference points at all. Did you? It was very isolating. I was going to say, did you find that? I said, I mean, I grew up, I mean, at 13 in Bedminster. I know this isn't about me, uh, but, and and I was so jealous of some of my friends that lived in Eastern and St. Paul's because you you could walk the streets and see people that, that, that you felt were like you. Yeah. And in where I grew up, there, there wasn't anyone. Re- the closest were my cl- really close Sicilian friends that I would knock about with. Mm. Uh, and it was difficult because you saw your parents then having to fit into that environment as well. Absolutely. I think I've always been envious of friends of mine who were fortunate enough to grow up in a diverse community and have themselves reflected in their friends or in people that they were meeting. And also in school as well, to be the token brown person was incredibly difficult. Mm. Um, I have to say my primary school were probably quite progressive for the time. Um, And I think the teachers were pretty knowledgeable about diversity. Things changed when I went to secondary school. Okay. Let's just stay in primary school because I'm, lo- I'm looking at my little list of things that Ivan's dug up for me. So 
I think you were five in 1988. You 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 got a blue Peter badge. <laughs> All right. What was yours for? I got a blue... Pe- so I was a runner-up in this national competition, um, which was exploring the rights of Indigenous peoples. Hang on a minute. How old were you? Five. So I'd drawn this uh, image of a Native American who had been uh, removed from his home and his yep. lands. And, uh, yeah, I got the badge. And that badge was like my sword. And it used to get me into all these oh cool places. And Five years of age? Five years. Blue Peter badge. <laughs> not for making like a... Not for making like a model out of uh, a, a, a cornflakes packet or something, but for 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 doing an image. Yeah, for standing up for the marginalised. Um, <laughs> so where did that come from? I think I had a natural interest in geography. Yeah. And also, my dad, who is possibly one of the most politically incorrect. Um, and critical thinkers of his time. Um, Weren't all our parents? <laughs> well, yeah, all of them. But so I think he always pr- tried to encourage me to think critically about the world around me. Okay. So. So at five you did. I, I did. All right. Um, so from primary school, this blue Peter badge holding uh, Zena <laughs> um, went to secondary school. How was your experience? different and and try if you can and build in because you've mentioned your brother mm. uh, just building about kind of uh, you know your relationship and ha- how you both kind of got on as well yeah so, so my brother was the golden boy <laughs> he still is older or younger than he's old, five years older than me yeah and um he's definitely the success story of the family we'll see out of the first isn't it the boy <laughs> the boy and just you know he's naturally so gifted and he's good at maths which is the only subject that I struggled with at school <laughs> and I think that's why he's always been on a pedestal so we got on very well as kids yeah um yeah we we've, we've got quite different personalities now but I still love him bless him <sighs> so I can see I can see that may, maybe I shouldn't go too much further no he's he he very much lives in the corporate world yeah what's his name um Aman Aman Okay. Um, and, uh, hi, because I know you're going to listen to this at some stage. So he's basically one of the corporates, and then I see myself as fighting the good fight. Right. Yeah. So, so one, one day you two might lock horns. One day, whenever we see each other. Yeah. But it's all good. All right, so he, he was the golden boy. Uh, so for you at school, not gifted at maths, but probably everything else. Every, and when I say not gifted in maths, it was a B, not an A. And so then I'd have to go home and explain to Dad why I'd got a B in maths. So from my perspective, extremely gifted at maths, but but for you, not. Yeah. All right. Secondary school, a struggle for you? Because, I mean, if, if he's five years older, your older brother, so for me, my, 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 my siblings were uh, 18 months apart. Right. So I had kind of protection in school mm. when I went. But for you then, you probably wouldn't have had that. You had, you, you no. had to cope with, with stuff on your own. Yeah, so we, sent, we went to the same primary school together, but he refused to acknowledge my existence in the playground. <sighs> So I'd wave at him across the No, but hedge. that is a brother. I, I, I don't, I don't want to defend him. I don't have sisters, right? But I understand that it seems to be a brother-sister thing. I can't imagine it, because if I had sisters, I would be there every two seconds making sure my sisters were fine. Yeah. Um, but I know families where they don't acknowledge each other, boys and girls. Don't mm. know why. At secondary school, we went to different schools. Yeah. Um, I went to Colston's Girls, so obviously he couldn't go there. but i could have done with some protection at colston's um how how was that experience for you it was brutal it was um, yeah i think it was the hardest seven years of my life um my wonderful mother um made the decision to send me to colston's at considerable financial cost so every single penny of her salary went on Mm. my tuition fees and she sent me there because she thought the schooling would be good yeah but look at you now 
Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But I'm a broken person, Pat, no, because listen, of what I had to go through. No, it not. was just daily racism and okay. just, uh, yeah, the the bullying was rife. Lack of policing from the teachers and also the level of ignorance amongst the teaching staff was pretty bad. Now, of course, I had pockets of excellence. Yeah. So my Spanish teacher was fantastic. and yeah. um, But then... I'd have very Did frequent... Did Spanish teach Spanish? No, she wasn't, but she spent a lot of time living in Spain. Okay. So and I think that had informed her mm-hmm. approach to dealing with children from different backgrounds. Um, what, what, t- t- tell us a little bit about... Um, you're saying racism... I'm not a broken person, by the way. No, I'm no, just no, being no. comical. No, you're not. You're not. Um, well, I don't think you are. You might think you are. <laughs> or you just might want sympathy. But let's go back to school. Um, and sometimes we don't want to remember stuff uh, from school because... You know, even now at my ripe old age, you, you, you recount stories and, um, yeah, really hurtful and, and scary and, and traumatic things may, may well have happened in, uh, in school. But try and, try and think back and, and talk to me about some of the stories that did, did disturb you at the time, some of the things uh, that were said or some of the things that happened. I think what I was immediately struck by um, was that it was such a segregated school. And I'm in terms of... How so? In terms of the physical classroom space right. that girls would sit according to their ethnic groups. Um, Hang on a minute. And well, but not, not by the school, surely. Not by the school, but, but just it's the environment go- right, okay. that actually would coerce people into sitting and forming groups in that way. Right. So when I started the school, I really struggled to make friends with anyone who was white, for yeah. example, because they just assumed that I would be... That I was different, I was othered. So then naturally I formed friendship groups with with black girls. There were hardly any Asian girls at the time going to Colston's. Um, But we were a real minority then. If you walk past the school now, the demographics are really different. Um, But back then, um, the school was um, really very... um, It was overly white, as most schools would be in Bristol. Mm. Um, But it was very segregated. But what was harder, I think, was the fact that we had real deficit thinking from the teaching staff, that if you were an ethnic minority, then you weren't expected to achieve. Um, And that was reinforced all the time. I've got such a vivid memory of an English teacher who was really new to the school um, saying to me that there's no way you could have written this essay because English isn't your first language. Wow. Wow. And I was brought up in an English-speaking household. Hmm. I'm multilingual, but my parents hmm. taught us English before they taught us anything else. So, and who, so, so who wrote it, Zena? I wrote it. <laughs> I'm joking. I need to find where she is, actually. I feel like sending her a copy of my PhD. Wow. But, um, they, and those memories don't ever leave you, cause they, because then as you go into, and now I'm in education myself, hmm. I'm so aware that some of our students might be experiencing some of that, or they might have had those experiences already, yeah. and what effect that then has on their belief in themselves and their own abilities so from when you recount back you look very much at the the, if you like the kind of structural situation Mm. at at, at school for you and the segregation but but in terms of name calling and individual experiences was looking back it's easy to say well actually it was a structural bit that was worse because that's what had the most profound uh, effect on you but actually on a day-to-day you know i remember going to school hiding because i didn't want certain people to be calling me certain things in front of other people or or or, or whatever did you ever feel a sense of danger or was it more kind of as i say more structured than that i think it was so as at the time i wasn't aware of the structure 
um, and the pervasive mm. um, disadvantage. So I just experienced that the day-to-day bullying as well, which was really um, quite difficult. Um, and my poor mum would come in every day and be outside the head teacher's office and yeah. say, oh, she's been called this name today or right. this incident's happened. And just, um, I think on reflection, we probably should have moved schools. But So what, were, what, what was the, the response? So obviously the P word. Um, the P word. And the school's response was, well, you know, you need to grow a thicker skin. And we all get called names from time to time. Well, my name gets mispronounced all the time, so you should sort of not take it personally. So there was a fundamental lack of understanding about the nature of the bullying that I was experiencing. But I think also, because I was a bit of a keener, um, I enjoyed my studies. I think I also came under a bit of heat from other girls for that as well. Okay, because you you excelled kind of uh, academically yeah. uh, in that sense. What do you say to people now? There will be some people listening now that will say, oh... It's another story. Look, here, here we go. Another story about race. Just get on with it. We're all different. Kids say things. Mm. Um, racism, racism. Get, you know, she's done all right now. Why? Why has she got to bring that? Well, because I'm asking. But um, how do you explain to someone that's never gone through an experience of that? You know, uh, and I'll say the word "packy." Mm. Is that when I hear it now? Um, you know, I'll joke with my dad sometimes and whatever. But when I hear somebody else out of context saying that, actually still gives me a shiver at my Absolutely. age now because I, I remember the kind of stuff that used to be said. And it wasn't just the word, it, it, it was the connotations yeah. and about how we were hated. I mm. hate effing so-and-sos, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Or bashing. You yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the songs and, and being around anywhere near my, my, my mum when we'd go shopping and hearing people shout it mm. uh, in the shopping centre and being spat on and all that. All that. So those things actually do bring me... Uh, in into a sweat but how, how do you explain that to other people that say oh race 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 are always on about race yeah well i would say that i came to the conversation about race quite late in life because i was so unaware of um the the dynamics at mm-hmm. play and i think it's not about so i never f- for a minute try and make excuses for where i am in life or what journey what journey and direction i've gone in as a result of my ethnicity but it's more about explaining to somebody that this is my lived experience. And as a result, I've had to carry all of this social conditioning. And there's a huge amount of shame which is often projected onto the British Asian community. But in particular, Pakistanis yeah. because of the, the P word yep. and all of the connotations around that. Yeah. Um, and I've had, to con- I've had to carry that unnecessarily because out of no choosing of my own. Yeah. And so I've done a lot of self-work and I'm fortunate to have been surrounded by some fantastic people over the course of the yeah. last like, decade or so that have made me realise that actually there's a community of solidarity out there, that this mm. is not an individualised experience that other people can also relate. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's a solution in terms of getting people to understand your worldview. And I suppose just keep telling stories so that, so that to, people yeah. can, can hear. In 1995, there was an arson attack on mm. your home. Tell, tell that us was, about that. Yeah, that was a very difficult um, experience. So, And I often... So people sometimes say to me, oh, um, you grew up in a fancy neighbourhood. I was like, yeah, but my house was torched when I was 11 because of my ethnicity. Um, so it was just... It was during Ramadan one year, and I remember our family had gone out to... Um, a, a, to to break fast with another yeah. um, family and we came back and there were fire engines all along the street and we thought oh, what's going on yeah and then we looked up and we saw the house just going up in flames and um we lost everything actually they had torched the place and they trashed and ransacked it and um yeah it was racially aggravated 
I lost all my Man United shirts. <laughs> I've got even more respect for you now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, that must have been, so, at, at that age, for, for you, for your, for your brother, for your, for your parents, uh, thank God that uh, nobody was seriously injured mm. or, or, or even killed. But, but what... You talk about shame and the P word, and then then you put it into perspective, and and you you experience something like that. How did that affect the confidence of the entire family? It shattered us. Actually, I think we didn't fully recover from that. Um, my mother would say to you that I was very subdued for years after that event, okay. um, and that I then had developed this almost an OCD about security. Yeah. So constant checking of locking doors, or when I'm going anywhere, to just check three or four times that everything is is fine. And that's quite natural. That was natural. Yeah. I wasn't aware that that's what was going on, but fortunately, I grew out of that many years later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my brother was devastated as well, and um, I think we just couldn't believe that anyone would target us in that way. Sure. Was anybody ever brought to justice for it? Was anybody ever caught for that? Not for that specific crime, but you never know. I'm sure, um, and let's hope that the criminal justice system caught up with those people eventually. Mm. Um, yeah. And what did you do after that then? Where, where, where Did you move out of that area or, or did, did you stay away and go back? So we had to move out for a period of time whilst the house was yep. um, repaired. That took quite a period of time. And in that time, I then started at um, Colston's. Yeah. So... That was quite a difficult period. Wow. So, I mean, you've told us about that experience at Colston's. And, of course, in 1995, the same, yeah, the same year yeah. uh, that there was this attack on your home. That must have been really traumatic then to go and then further experience the, uh, you know, the... And I suppose it, it was kind of institutionalised in that way because the school didn't deal with it. It, mm. it allowed these situations to occur of segregation. Um, so, Wow. Uh, it's written here you hated Colston's uh, and you survived through the love of football and sports. Were you a player or, or, or a supporter? Were you both? Both, yeah. So at the time, I was, I'm not into football anymore. Um, I don't follow it as closely. I get into we the can, World Cup. We can change that. Oh, we can change it. It's never yeah. too late. But at the time, I was the biggest Man United fan. I knew everything. I was stato. I knew which goals had been scored when, what type of goal it was. And it was, it was during the glory days. So uh, Cantona gigs. No, stop, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're, we're going to come back after the news uh, and talk a bit about Manchester United <laughs> and, and, and your fascination with them. But until then, we're going to take the news. We're talking uh, to Dr. Zena Khan, uh, who is the Faculty Academic Director of Student Experience at the University of the West of England. But she is so much more. Please stay tuned for the second part after the news. Good morning. This is the One Love Breakfast, live from inner city Bristol. Dobre rano. Goedemorgen. Bonjour. Guten Morgen. Glumera. Bon matin. Subhachahe. Yore gel. Buongiorno. Ohayo. Godaina. Salve. Good morning. Dzień dobry. Bonjour. Dobre utra. Dobre rano. Buenos dias. Good morning. Don ciao tidi. The One Love Breakfast is the people's choice. One love. 
Love Breakfast. It's 9.33. Welcome back. It is Bristol's One Love Breakfast. BCFM Radio's One Love Breakfast on 93.2 or online via Pirate Nation and Radio WSM as well. Uh, thanks for choosing us and thank you for listening. We've been talking uh, since 9 o'clock to Dr. Zena Khan, uh, who is a true inspiration, part of our Extraordinary People series. You can hear this again via podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and through our website. We'll explain it all afterwards now. Um, Zena Khan was born and bred in Bristol in 19... <laughs> <and> <laughs> Sorry, welcome back. Welcome back, Zena. Thank you. Uh, born in Bristol uh, back in the day. She's got a blue Peter badge and she's spoken uh, about education at Colston Girls School as well after uh, both mum and dad uh, came to the UK from Pakistan. Uh, she was educated here uh, and spoke also about an arson attack on her home in 1995 where they lost everything. She then went to Colston Girls School and encountered segregation and bullying. But she says she survived through the love of sports and football, uh, particularly her love of Manchester United, which I guess I'm a Derby supporter, but I do have a love for Manu. I guess I, I share that. Where, where did that come from, Zena? That came from my brother. Okay. So, and as any younger sibling will tell you, who has an older brother, you yeah. sort of have to either buy into their hobbies or just sit to the side. Yeah. So that's yeah, true. Um, Saturday Live, you know, watching um, what was it called back in the day? Um, on well, Saturday morning, yeah, it was football. It was football focus, grandstand, grandstand, world of yeah. sport, yeah, all of that, yeah. And um, that was back in the day when football was free to watch on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then yeah, I just got the team saw me through that decade. Actually, really, absolutely. I Come on, go through some of those players. Come on, so who can you This was back when they won the treble for the yeah. first time. Do you remember when they had that, that yes. away kit? Come on. Oh. What a time. I've got that kit. And um, all of those young boys were coming through at that time. Yeah, so the yeah, Neville Brothers, yeah. Beckham, um, Giggs. Yeah, Scolzi. Yeah. Nicky exactly. Butt. And then we had Ince in defence. Yeah. Like, it was a fantastic team. <laughs> <laughs> did you? So you watched on it. Did you ever go to a game? Or, or, or did no, you? I, um, I watched a lot of it at home. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I then bought all the memorabilia, all the yeah. magazines, mugs. Did you do, get Shoot magazine or was it Match shoot. Was it match Weekly? Match Weekly with, yeah. the, t- with the stickers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Ivan in there thinking, I used to do that. Not. I was more of a Barbie person, to be honest. All right, fair, 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 fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. I'm sure you could dress Barbie up in a Man United top. I did have a Barbie. I cut the hair off it, though. How were you with, um, I was going to say, how were you with kind of, if you like, the traditional toys and stuff that, that girls are supposed to yeah. have? Um, I rejected all of it. I was a really? real, yeah, I was a real tomboy. So in addition for, to football and playing football, um, it was all about sports. So athletics, which I did quite well in. So yeah. then the school sent me off to do different trials and, and events. Yeah. Netball, hockey. Um, yeah, so I was constantly... Um, keeping fit and wow. keeping busy that way you describe yourself as a tomboy or other people would describe yourself as that because you rejected those traditional things and, mm. and and you loved your sports if you were able to have taken a particular sport and discipline what would it have been athletics yeah oh gosh just loved it just the f- and even now i'd still do sprint training from time to time really and there's nothing like it the adrenaline that feeling you fast um i'm not as fast as i was back in the day but i'm pretty i'm not bad you faster than me I definitely am. You really think so? I know that. I know that. <laughs> really? Is, are you? Uh, so what, are we meters, setting a wager? Or, or three hundred, four hundred meters? What, what would it be? Well, hundred or two hundred meters. 
And I was good on the relay as well, so you'd need me in a team that wasn't performing I well. Think I'd I could, rescue I think it. I could probably do you on 200 metres, you know. 100 metres, maybe not. It's, it's my starting. That's what the problem is. But 200 metres, I've had this... I've had this discussion with someone else. Right, I think that we're setting a date for this showdown. You do realise how old I am, don't you? Do you realise how old I am? Yeah, I've got your date of birth in front of me. <laughs> so, so athletics, really. So, but, but you never really carried, carried that through, or did, did you kind of pursue that um, um, as a leisure thing? No, all of that sort of evaporated when I went to university. Um, and then I rekindled my love of fitness and training um, much later on. Okay, so whilst you, whilst you were at Colston's, even though you hated it, you, you survived it, mm. um, and during that that period, uh, you got a little job. I'm sure you had a number of little jobs. Uh, Woolworths is one <laughs> of them, but um, I, I'm reading here that you quit it. Why? I quit. Why? So this is so I had co- I had constantly had um, part time jobs whilst I was at school. Yeah, uh, this is when um, employment legislation was very fluid, so they didn't yeah. scrutinise how old you were when you were working. But I was working at Woolworths yeah. around the same time I was doing my GCSEs, mm-hmm. and um, the manager used to keep ringing me and uh, accusing me of not being a team player because I wasn't putting in enough shifts. Right, and he wanted me to start missing school in order to coming and pulling some extra shifts and it was just the most bizarre th- i don't know if you remember well, Woolworths you quite, used to be on black boy hill yeah up in clifton maybe you were good at your job i wasn't though because i used to just get shouted at all the time <laughs> it was hilarious i remember going to a team meeting when i'd just been um hired yeah and uh, the manager pulled out these charts and said right guys the results are in we've conducted yeah. a survey of the local residents and we are the least popular shop in the neighborhood really <laughs> and um and zena it's your and fault it's my fault um, so, and then they wanted me to wear a, so I, we all had these badges to wear on the tills yeah. with our names on, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't order one for me. So I had to wear one that said Sarah on. Really? Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't they order one for you? Well, let, let, one wonders. Are you serious? Oh, of course I am. Always. That's unbelievable. So you were Sarah? I was Sarah. <sighs> Sarah on a Sunday. But no, I wasn't having it. Um, so you quit? So I quit. What was the reason you give for, for you gave for quitting, or, or did you just quit? I think I know? quit, and I don't even think I collected my salary. Gosh, irresponsible. No, 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 not at all. Uh, you passed your driving test in two thousand and one. Um, was that a straightforward affair? <laughs> Have you ever sat in the car with me, Pat? I'm a natural driver. I'm naturally gifted. I've heard from others. Yeah. I think it was Alex, actually. I've I've, I've heard a story what did or two. Say? Nothing. You t- you tell me. Tell me about your driving well, test. So. I should have passed on my first attempt, mm-hmm. but as the test kept on coming and not going my way, um, I thought, right, well, something has to be done about this. So I wrote a letter alleging corruption and the existence of quotas to the test centre. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that I was deliberately being failed because they had a quota in operation that they wouldn't pass more than 35% of... Local and, and I um, understood that as well. But my mm. answer to that was, well, I just need to make sure I'm in that quota. <laughs> uh, that was my answer. Uh, yeah. So, um, and obviously, when you're young, you don't want to tell your friends that you keep on failing a test. No, I passed and first time. So. I remember I was um, holding a summer party in my house, and then the doorbell rang, and the chief examiner from whatever professional body or regulatory yeah. body turned up with his clipboard and my letter, and he wanted to sit down and have a chat about. Um, the allegations gosh um, because he was very um, concerned um, that these rumours were circulating Bristol and then he ended up sitting in the car with me on my next test and of course I passed then 
So of course you did. I'm a fully licensed driver. Allegedly. No, I am. Seriously. No, but some people <laughs> wonder... wonder Ale- yes, whether wh- I was good enough to pass on yeah, that particular whether, day. Whether it was that, that, um, that complaint that, that, that got you <laughs> your driving <laughs> licence. So let's move on, right? Um, in, in 2002, you went to university, the University of the West of England. Um, probably, from, from an academic perspective, you did well. Um, at at Colston Girls School, which would have meant that Mum and every, you know w- w- would have said yes, you know uh, she she's got this, so mm. I'm vindicated yeah. uh, for sending her. At what stage did you make a decision, or did others make a decision of what you would study mm. at, at university? I would just roll back a second, actually, because what I would say is I did well in terms of national averages. Yes. But I would say that I underperformed in my A-levels because there was... um, Some of my exam papers had gone missing when my A-level results came out and the school didn't really fight hard enough to get those papers remarked. Right. So even though I'd been predicted very high grades across the board, I significantly underperformed against it. So that meant I missed out on my preferred choice of going to Bristol Uni. Okay. Um... And all these things work out for the best because actually Yui was so good for me. Yeah. Um, in terms of the decision to study law, well, we only just need to sit down and imagine a typical Asian household at dinner time. <laughs> My options were medicine, law or accountancy. What are you doing, law? Yes. So, <laughs> so fortunately... <laughs> Fortunately, my brother took, the, took care of the accountancy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and then I law. went into law. Gosh. And, and was that... Just flipping back, you you say that you underperformed, but at the, did you believe that at the time, or is it only looking back uh, when you think about it at Colson's in terms of your A levels, or, or at the time were you were you unhappy? Uh, no, at the time, I was outraged. Like some of my okay. so my without going into the detail, and you might, your listeners will be thinking, how does she remember all of this after mm. so many years? But these things really stick. Some things stick with you, don't of they? Course. So in some of my A level exams, I scored a hundred percent. But my courseworks, which had been cleared by teachers and yeah. looked through many drafts and all the rest of it, they came back unclassified. So it was almost as if, like, they'd uh-huh. been written by two different people. Yeah, yeah. So that was a deep sense of injustice. But what I take from that is that I ended up going to a university which has given me so much. And I ended up being exposed to other young people and friends from different walks of life. And I never would have had that experience had I gone to Bristol Uni. So tell us about your experience. Um, You know, Blue Peter badge holder uh, (laughs) from five. I didn't take that to campus Um, with me. I I don't believe you. Uh, (laughs) I think it was in the bottom of your bag somewhere. (laughs) Would have been a conversation maker. Uh, A bit of an activist, even though probably you didn't realise it at the time. And and 2002, you went to, to UWE. So what was that? experience like bearing in mind that uh your you know your chosen vocation was going to be a difficult road anyway wasn't it academically yeah university was so unlike anything i could have imagined so i'd gone to quite a small school class sizes were tiny we Mm. had like six in a class and then suddenly you find yourself in a lecture theater with 250 other people yeah um and yeah I i felt like uh I felt perhaps that I could have done with a couple of years before I'd gone to university to just grow up a bit. Um, but the course itself was really challenging, very hard. Um, and, you know, when they say you go to university to read law, there was a lot of reading. Right. Um, but I got into a good group of friends and, yeah, it was 
It was a great three years. And you were you lived at home. I, I lived assume, at home. Yeah. Which which kind of yeah would have uh, mm. saved a bit of all that money forked out on Colston. I don't, school didn't save any money from day. staying at home. Did you not? No, I just you know was irresponsible and young. Were you were you a party animal? Um, yes. Or did you? Oh gosh. So and that had to be negotiated you because to you know what Asian families are like. They don't really like the girls going out. No. So I had to negotiate that with my mum. And within three months of starting uni, she'd sort of finally given in to okay, she's going to have to go out and come back late. So initially, my mum would pick me up from outside the club at like two a.m. And then she'd say, I can't keep doing this. The taxi drivers are going to recognise me. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to make your own way home. Did he take your Blue Peter badge to the clubs? Um, no, I didn't, Pat. All right, I was just checking. Yeah. Um, a, so, pos- a positive experience at uni for you? It was a positive experience, yeah. I think I definitely could have studied harder. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> all of us could, I yeah. think, who, who've been to uni. But um, I think I really developed as a person. Um, and the partying pretty much stopped as soon as I finished uni. It just felt like it was an experience I'd had and I didn't need you to didn't revisit need to have it. Again. Yeah. So in 2006, completed bar school. What does that mean for someone so, who's uneducated? Um, after, you, once you get a law degree, yeah. um, you're not a qualified lawyer. So, right. um, and I, at that time, I intended to go in and practice law. Yeah. So um, I went on to do my bar exams to yeah. train to become a barrister. Okay. So, yeah, I did that for an additional year. And that involved um, a undertaking a course but also going up to london back and forth for lots of training events and, and dining sessions dining sessions what are yeah. they well very antiquated imagine harry potter and that big hall yeah and you've all got to robe up and sit down and have dinner with um respected members of the profession right and there was actually a manual they'd give you of dining etiquette mm-hmm. and i think it was those types of experiences that made me feel quite suffocated and quite n- um, trapped in terms of this possibly wasn't the right profession for me. Um, was it was was it male dominated at, at, at that time, or, or, or not really? Or was there was there a reasonable gender balance? I think the numbers of uh, students studying law was pretty mixed. So right. there were, and actually even now there are more females studying law okay. than there were. But in terms of the profession, and yeah. especially the barristers profession, yeah. that still has a gender balance. A slight pre- over preference for for male practitioners. So, what did you do between so uh, twenty fourteen awarded your your PhD? And for those that don't understand the process, explain. Okay, so I practiced law for two years. Yeah. Realised that I'd made a terrible mistake, and then fortunately, why? Why? I just felt the whole thing was just way too uh, prescriptive. And what area did you practice? Um, civil law, okay. so everything other than crime. Mm-hmm. Um, largely, I did a lot of personal injury work as well, so lots mm-hmm. of ambulance chasing, because yep. there was a lot of work in Bristol at that time yep. in personal injury. Um, but a lot of the... I think I just found it far too repetitive. Sure. And ultimately, if I'd wanted to make it in law... I would have probably needed to relocate in the area that I was interested in. Yeah. And um, I had other things going on at home at that time. So I wanted to stay um, close sure. to family. Okay. So I stayed in touch with some of my university lecturers. And one in particular who was fantastic, he said, oh, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? And I said, yes, it's my dream. But I always thought I'd do it much later on in my career. Okay. He said, no, why don't you just come up with a proposal? Um, so... I suppose the starting point for a PhD is different depending on what subject you're doing it in. But for me, it was just an idea. I wanted to test an argument and see where it would go. And then 
that resulted in me picking up some casual teaching at the university. And then so slowly I migrated over from practice into um, academia. And within a couple of years, and I'd secured a faculty position at UWE. And your PhD was? So my PhD examined the reasons and motivations why the government uses public participation to make decisions around the environment. Um, And principally, I was criticising it. Lots of people think it's a good thing to have the people's voice part of a decision-making process. But I was suggesting that actually often it's rubber stamping, tick box exercises. And if you look at the public that participate, they don't reflect and don't represent a broader constituency. So then I then became quite interested in marginalised voices um, and also the motivations of people who turn up to a town hall meeting often they don't care about the community. They might just be uh, minded about making sure their own property value doesn't decrease Mm -hmm. and they're sort of not in my backyard attitude. So that's what my doctor explored. Oh, okay. Do you know, we've only got 10 minutes left and we've got so much to cover. (laughs) Um, In 2016, you volunteered in Kenyan prisons teaching lifers. Just tell us... I could do a whole programme about that bit. Yeah, that was... And I know it sounds cliche, but that was life changing. Mm-hmm. So I'd been at UE for quite a few years by that point, and I'd gone into management. And as you take on more management roles, your teaching goes down to make up for the time that you then spend sure. sort of um, running portfolios. And um, I saw an advert in one of the um, academic journals for volunteers to go out to Kenya and teach inmates who were serving commuted life sentences. So they'd been convicted on death row, but then yeah. those sentences were commuted to, commuted commuted to life. Yeah. And the purpose of the programme is to get the inmates qualified so they can then represent themselves and represent their peers. And um, it's funded by the UK government and it's part of the African Prisons Project. Okay. So I went out um, with another colleague to Nairobi and we spent a few weeks there. And um, I, st- I taught in maximum security prisons and it was fantastic. The students were probably some of the best I've ever met. Um, Did and it I, change perceptions for you? In, it completely in changed respects, perceptions because yeah. I've never been a big fan of gap years. And I also don't like the sort of poverty tourism where a lot of young people will go out mm. and, you know, find themselves. I didn't need to find myself. But what I did need was some perspective at that point in my life. So, um, yeah, going and having that experience in Kenya was really quite moving. And I remember coming back and thinking and telling a friend about the experience I'd had. And she said, you know, you can do a lot of work here as well. Um, And then that without I think subconsciously, that's probably where equity came from. That I thought, Mm -hmm. no, I need to do something with my life that really has value to it. So you launched the equity program uh, the the following year that, that, that kind of, you know, to me, and I think in time will, will become kind of quite legendary in many respects because it's it's going to be the blueprint that, that, that others are going to look to. For those that don't know about the equity program, it's probably, I don't know if it's harder or easier for you, just in, in kind of a very short space of time, explain what it is designed for. Okay, so nationally we see disparities in the labour market between the performance of BME individuals and white individuals. In terms of graduates, most people think that if you go to university, you're going to end up with a fantastic job at the end of it, um, and it sort of equals a playing field. But the statistics don't bear that out. So equity is designed to support BME students 
get professional level employment and go into high quality self-employment so enterprise and we do that through um, identity coaching so we try and develop themselves and so in terms of identifying their own talent unlocking their potential as leaders um, giving them skills to cope with stress and also goal setting and actualizing those goals then we do loads of enterprise education so we get in entrepreneurs and professionals to come in and tell them all the stuff that they're not going to find out about if they're not tapped into networks and if they're not fortunate to come from a background where they're surrounded by lots of professionals and then we do very large networking events and bring in keynote speakers we also have mentoring that goes on so that's principally what the equity program's about just changing people's sure. career destinations now there will be those that will say come on you know in bristol we got plenty of people of color and and whatever we've been doing this for ages um stepping up our, our young people from BME backgrounds and whatever it's fine isn't it but actually, the statistics don't bear that out in terms of, uh, you know, you can pick it out and say, well, actually, the Somali young people are doing a little bit better than average and, and whatever. But actually, when we look generally mm. across, and I'm talking specifically, and I'm not going to feel guilty about talking about uh, uh, young people from B- BME background specifically right now, because this is our time to talk. The stats don't bear it out. No. So, so how did you find, if you like, all right, you're protected by being in this, and I'm not saying it's a UE bubble, but but actually a very supportive environment. But then there's the rest of the city mm. that didn't think like you um, because you and, and, and your team and Alex were very disruptive and quite mm. groundbreaking. How did you find that? Yeah. Well, actually, I would say that we were in a protective bubble as far as our faculty was concerned. Right. So the business school and the law school, they were the protective bubble that allowed yeah. this to grow. Yeah. But we still had a lot of work to do, and we still have a lot of work to do to get the rest of the university community to recognise the place of things like equity. We've got support right at the top at UE. That definitely helps. Because if you've got sponsorship from senior leaders, then actually that means that you feel like you can go and have those honest conversations. And quite frankly, I think universities across the country have not done enough to have those difficult conversations about race. Um, In terms of the city's reaction to equity, that's been by and large really positive. Mm -hmm. I can't actually give you any examples of anyone who's questioned us externally. Yeah. Um, well, most probably, of the they, they probably wouldn't have any right to, would they? Because it's been, it looks as though it's been, it's been working. Obviously, the stats will bear that out yeah. in, in in later years. Mm. But in terms of the way that you've gone about, and you've gone about it really, really differently. So I guess in a way, I'm not saying you've shamed people into getting involved, but actually people couldn't refuse to to be involved because it's such a positive thing. I think the difference was that. And I don't know where it came from. Um, Maybe it was just a moment of madness, but I didn't ask permission. I just thought it just needed to be done. And Mm. I think when you when your attitude is that you've got to seek permission and you've got to be sort of uh, retiring um, and shying away, then those sorts of ideas are never going to flourish because Mm -hmm. people will be nervous about the unknown and they'll be nervous about something that's new. Um, I think there is more educating that needs to be done around the statistics. A lot of people don't realise that over 50% of black graduates are unemployed. Mm. A lot of people don't know what it means to have a race pay gap of 23%. Um, Or that if you're an ethnic minority female, the race pay gap's 34% as soon as you graduate. So um, there's definitely more work that we can do about sharing that information Mm. so that people realise that that's why we've got to do something like equity. Sure. And it's going to have a knock-on effect to every community. So Mm. I said it's our time right now to talk, but actually, you know, we know there are other statistics about white working-class kids and males and whatever. But actually, the the whole equity programme will have a knock-on effect because it's going to help everybody absolutely and people now say oh, well, what about the white working class and i'm like yeah exactly what are you going to do about it 
Exactly, yeah. uh, as opposed to looking, looking to you. I suppose a very quick, quick question is that our communities need to step up ourselves as well. It's mm. e- easy to do that dividing thing and say, well, uh, the attainment of BAME uh, students is, is, is this and these are the percentage yeah. gaps, actually. Uh, but there are plenty of people in colour in, mm. in, in post and in position right across the country and in institutions uh, around the country as well. How can things like equity help us, and I, I say us because I include me too, to step up as well and say, do you know what, maybe we've been doing things the wrong way yeah. in the past. And it and doesn't even have to just be people who've got positions of authority who, or who are part of organisations. Just take it back to the role of the parent. And I think that parents need to see themselves as being stakeholders in their children's futures. Right. They need to be going to the schools and saying, what are these attainment gaps? Of course, they need that information in the start, you know, sure. from the outset. But if parents think that they're dropping their kids off every morning to school and, the, you know, the school's going to do the not. the rest of the job for no. them. You need to chase them up. You need to chase them. And so really we need to work harder as a city to sort of spark that activism or that sense of entitlement to challenge. Mm. And it's a constructive challenge. It's not, you know, we're going to burn the place down. It's about saying, look, we want justice. We want equitable futures for everyone, regardless of backgrounds. Wow, you've done that perfectly. Uh, we've run out of time. <laughs> but, Zena, thank you so much for joining us. You really are an extraordinary person. And I, I actually think uh, you don't yet realise the power uh, of the work you're doing across our city. So thank you thank for you, taking time to join us. Thank you for uh, having me. On the One Love Breakfast. This is going to be available as a podcast on iTunes. We'll announce it very soon and give you links to find out more about Dr. Zena Khan. Uh, Thank you. We'll catch you tomorrow on the One Love Breakfast. This is Bristol's BCFM on 93.2 online and on your mobile. BCFM is an award-winning community radio station for Bristol. Bringing you national news on the hour. Live from the Sky News Centre.